0: This morning we are going to talk about someone that I guess tends to make us Baptists nervous. Um, I don't know why, uh, but for some reason, whenever we start talking about the Holy Spirit in church, folks tend to get nervous. I don't know why, it's like, Pastor, you gonna, we going to go all charismatic and Pentecostal in here? Well, it depends on what you mean by Pentecostal. Uh, if, if by Pentecostal you mean uh, I, I'm going to start having things coming out of my mouth that nobody in this room understands with no interpreter and falling asleep behind the pulpit, then no, I don't mean Pentecostal. But if you mean Pentecostal in the sense that we're as believers, every single one of us going to depend on the indwelling of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to empower our life and our ministry and allow us to bear fruit, then yes, let's be Pentecostal. Um, Someone has said a long time ago that in the early church, if you were to remove the Holy Spirit from their goings on, only about uh, 10% of what they were doing would continue. And everyone would notice. But if you were to remove the Holy Spirit from the doings of the modern church, about 90% of what we do would continue and hardly anyone would notice. The Holy Spirit is not just important. He is essential. The Holy Spirit is key to our lives as believers. And I'm a, a... I'm a pretty goofy person. I like reading web comics, and to make a point of of sometimes the way that we uh, commit mild errors without thinking about it is that we refer to the Holy Spirit as an "it" instead of a "he." Uh, the, the Holy Spirit is not an "it." I read a comic one time where it was two guys having a conversation, and one says to the other. Uh, You know, I'm just struggling to understand the Holy Spirit and how it works in my life as a believer. And the other guy says, well, that's your first problem. The Holy Spirit's not an it, it's a he. Or he's a he, he's a person. And the second guy says, yeah, well, you know what I mean. Well, we'll talk about this later. Hey, I'm I'm getting ready to ask my fiance to marry me. Um, Can you tell me what I need to do uh, tonight? And the other guy says, well, first I would take it out to dinner. Then I would buy it a a nice meal. Then I would give it a ring. The guy says, she's not an it. She's a person. The the first guy said, yeah, well, you know what I mean. See, the, the point is the Holy Spirit is a person. He has revealed himself as a person. So I wanted to kind of throw that out there before we talk about the Holy Spirit. Because if you start from the point of thinking the Holy Spirit is some impersonal force. That He's really more of an it that just kind of floats around believers and helps us do stuff. No. The Holy Spirit is a person. He communicates. He lives with us. He lives in us. If you know Jesus Christ, that first we've got to start by thinking about the Holy Spirit as a person. And the second question we've got to ask is, what does this person do amongst us? Well... I can't put everything that the Holy Spirit does into one sermon. I just flat can't do it. And if I tried to do it, y'all would not like it. Because when about 2 o'clock got here, y'all would say we've had enough. Uh, but what we're going to do today, since we're at the portion in the creed where it just says we believe, I believe in the Holy Spirit we're going to look at what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said the Holy Spirit was going to do when He arrived. Uh, So uh, that's going to be in John chapter 16, and we're just going to look at verses 7 through 11. So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to spend this morning talking about our Helper, the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged." Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to us this morning to convict us of sin in, ju- in righteousness and judgment. Um, Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you return to the Father so that we might have the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are amongst us this morning, those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to give us illumination so that when we look at Scripture, we can see it beyond the veil, that we do not see it uh, held away from us. But Lord... You make it clear to us when we read it, and you help us to understand what sin, righteousness, and judgment are. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So uh, I, I want to break this into uh, exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit's going to do when he arrives. But before we get there, we have a couple of verses of prologue in <clears throat> verses 7 and 8. And I wanted to kind of take these and set them apart because... Uh, I don't want to use the word unbelievable, because obviously we're supposed to believe it, but incredible, uh, maybe, in verses 7 and 8. Listen to what the Lord Jesus says. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Anytime you see Jesus say, I tell you the truth, or something like, verily, verily, or behold, or anytime Jesus prefaces what he says with that, that's kind of a hint to you to pay extra attention. Uh, That Jesus, anytime Jesus speaks, you need to pay attention. Um, That you need to be paying attention when he talks at any time. But even Jesus himself, despite the fact that all of his words were the words of God, he said, hey, even though I'm God and you pay attention to all my words, pay special attention to these. So he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Stop and think about that for a second. There are very few things that I could think would thrill my soul more than the incarnate Word of God standing right in front of me. Wouldn't you love for King Jesus to physically be present in this building today? Wouldn't that be great? That would be awesome. And if you're here last week, you know, be careful, it could happen any second. (laughs) I mean, he could show up. It's his house. He can walk in when he wants to. But Jesus just said to his disciples, it is to their advantage that he go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete in Greek, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. Jesus said very clearly, if I do not go away, and by go away you have to mean the whole process. His death, burial, and resurrection. Again, just like the Creed, the creed says. He was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day He rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He, he went away. He was crucified He left the land of the living, went into the tomb, came back and ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, that he temporarily went away in his death. He temporarily returned to life. I mean, permanently returned to life, but temporarily returned to be among the disciples and then returned to the father until at which time he shall return to judge the quick and the dead. That. He is permanently alive, but He has returned to the right hand of the Father for now. And Jesus said, if it were not for this process of events, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension, if it wasn't for that, the Holy Spirit would not come to you. So Jesus was telling His disciples, Guys, if I stay with you like this, having never been crucified, having never been buried, having never been raised, having never ascended, then yes, you would have me with you, but you would not have me within you. That's a very different existence. The difference between New Testament Christians and Old Testament saints is that God was always near them, but He was never within them. If you look at the Old Testament, I mean, think, think back to our boy Samson. Big old hulking dude, pulled building down on top of the Philistines. Anytime something like that was going to happen, what did you see? The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He didn't live there. He just came upon him to accomplish what needed to be done, and then he withdrew. In the New Testament, that doesn't happen to us. Once the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, He doesn't leave. You have something that the judges, that the prophets, that the kings could only dream of. That David, you know, please take not your spirit away from me. God doesn't. Not for us, because we are living on this side of the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus has given us the ability to have the Holy Spirit live within us permanently. So I just wanted to take a second and point out church. The Holy Spirit does not deserve to be treated as an afterthought. He deserves to be at the forefront of our minds all the time because it is the Holy Spirit. He is the incredible truth that God really does dwell in his people. That when Paul says you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that your body is a living temple He means that in the literal sense. The same way that the temple in the Old Testament contained the presence of God on earth among His people, your body as a believer contains the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you. And Jesus says that this would not happen apart from His crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That has to happen first. So... For the entirety of this sermon, remember, it, if you desire the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, have you come to the cross? Have you, because if you haven't come to the cross, if you haven't given your life to Christ, you do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. That does not mean the Holy Spirit is not working on you. Which is exactly what Jesus says Next, Jesus actually says in verse 8 that when the Holy Spirit has come, he will do three things. He will convict the world of sin, he will convict the world of righteousness, and he will convict the world of judgment. So I love it when Jesus makes my sermon outline, because we have three points like a perfect Baptist sermon. He just gave me three right there. So let's look at each of them. First, Jesus says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. But then in verse 9, he expands this a little bit. He says he will convict the world of sin. Why? Because they do not believe in me. Uh, John, uh, as a writer... Okay, so you've got... This is inspired by the Holy Spirit. By the way, this something else he did. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit. What that means is that every word in this book, in the original Greek, in the New Testament, in the original Hebrew... Um, In the Old Testament, every word, every piece of grammar is exactly the way God intended it to be. There are no errors therein. Uh, That being said, the Holy Spirit used different personalities of writers with different styles to communicate exactly what He wanted to say. And one of the interesting things, literary techniques, if you can say that, of of John. And this happens in every book John wrote. In the Gospel of John, in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and in Revelation. He does the same thing in every book he ever wrote. Is that John has this frustrating habit, for those of us who are trying to understand him, of using words that have more than one meaning. And sometimes he means all of them at the same time. This is kind of one of those situations in which the, the words that we have in John can mean multiple things. Uh, this is from the, uh, the, the New International Commentary on the New Testament um, from our boy Leon Morris. Um, he says, the Greek underlying these verses may be taken in any one of three principal ways. It might mean he will convict the world of wrong ideas of sin in that they do not believe. It might mean he will convict the world of of its sin because they do not believe. For example, their belief is a classic illustration of their sin. Or it might mean he will convict the world of its sin, which consists in the fact that they don't believe. None of these is impossible. And in the Johannine manner, more than one may be intended. So John drops a construction in Greek that could mean any one of these three things And it might mean all three of these things. So, to sum it up, just to put it in basic terms, John might have meant that the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of their misunderstanding of the nature of sin and what is sinful because they're unbelieving people. In other words, Jesus is saying when the Holy Spirit comes, people who think certain things are sinful but aren't or certain things aren't sinful but are, the Holy Spirit is going to correct them. Because the reason that they misunderstand sin is because they haven't believed in the right God. That's one possible meaning. And to be fair you, you can't, if a man, woman, or boy or girl is unbelieving of God, of course they're going to misunderstand the nature of sin. Look at any major world religion. Uh, take take Hinduism for example. This is this is a classic. This is a great example, at least in my mind. Hindus believe in reincarnation, right? Hindus believe that when you die, your soul gets recycled into a new body. It may or may not be human, depending on how you lived. If you live well, then you get to be a better human. If you live poorly, you might be a skunk. I don't know. Because Hindus believe in reincarnation, they believe that humans could potentially be reincarnated as animals. So, as a logical deduction, well, if grandma died, and grandma could be that cow out back, I don't need to eat that cow out back. Because certainly eating that cow out back would be sinful if that cow is grandma. This, sound, this sounds like a chuckle, but it's, it, that's the logic. That if humans are reincarnated and humans can become animals, then it's sinful to eat animals because we might be eating a human. Now, that, that's their logic based on the way they believe God... God's, the afterlife, works. See how believing in different gods leads you to a different conclusion of what is sinful? Now, if you believe in the God of the Bible, first off, we have no problem eating a hamburger. Thank the Lord. That's not an issue, but if you believe in the God of the Bible then your definition of sin is going to match the definition of sin that the God of the Bible has. Which is anything that is against or contrary to His character. Christians define sin differently from Hindus because Christians have a different God than Hindus. If you've ever seen someone justify an action as, well, this is okay for me to do because I believe, that's a religious statement. That's a religious statement. You know, for example, uh, I was talking with a friend this last week. Uh, We were discussing the abortion debate. That whether or not abortion is appropriate boils down to one question. Do you believe that what you're killing is a baby or something else? Well, for Christians, you formed me in my mother's womb. You knit me together in the secret place. That, yeah, Absolutely, the life in the womb of the mother is a baby. God says, thou shalt not murder. Human beings are made in the image of God. So if this is a human, if this is a person, then it's a sin to do that. Well, if somebody says, well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe that that in the womb is a human. Do you see how different beliefs lead to different definitions of sin? One thing that Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to do is when He comes, He is going to convict people of what sin really is. Because they don't believe in God, they have a, a, a failing definition of what is sin. That's one potential meaning. The second potential meaning of this, and keep in mind, It can can mean all three at once. John does this all the time. The lack of belief in Jesus, this is the second meaning, the lack of belief in Jesus is exemplary of their life of sin in every other area. This actually shows up all throughout the Bible, but I will take you back. This is not on your handout, but just to stay in the same book, y'all probably all know... Say it together with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then you can go down to verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But what about 18 through 20? He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. These are the important verses for what we're talking about. This is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Lest his deeds should be exposed. What John is saying, Jesus might be saying here, is because these people are already in darkness. They're already leading lives of sin. They're already unbelieving. When the light shows up, when Jesus gets here, it is just the next step down the same road. I have rejected God every other point. I'm going to reject God when He's standing in front of me. That this is merely one more sin in a pattern of sinfulness. And Jesus is saying when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to convict these people that you have rejected God and your rejection of Jesus Christ is just evidence point A. That That the Holy Spirit here is functioning as a prosecutor, is the way Jesus says it. that we talk all the time about Jesus being our advocate. We talked about Jesus being our advocate a couple of weeks ago. In this particular passage, the Holy Spirit is not functioning as the advocate. He's functioning as the prosecutor. And He's saying, based on your life of sin, to pick the one condemning piece of evidence to prove your sin, it would be the rejection of Jesus Christ. That the light showed up and you loved darkness rather than light. Because if you had loved the light... You would have come to Jesus, but you didn't come to Jesus, that means you love the dark. That you continue in this path of sin. Believing Jesus at His Word would have meant abandoning their sinful lives, but they were not willing to do that, so they refused to believe. That that's the second potential meaning, that their lack of belief in Jesus was exemplary of the rest of their pattern of sin. And then third, the unbelief in Jesus itself is sin. That unbelief is a sin is confirmed over and over throughout Scripture. Uh, I'll give you another couple that are not on your handout because I'm trying to move quickly because we do have some thick Scripture uh, that's on there. But Isaiah chapter 31.1. Isaiah chapter 31, one, If I can get my... My page to turn here. God says this through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah explicitly. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. Who trust in chariots because they're many. And in horsemen because they're very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. We do this in a mild way whenever somebody says, Is there anything I can do for you? And you go, No, I guess not. Just pray. That we take what should be our first resort and we make it the last resort. That unbelief itself is a sin. Uh, that uh, look at look at Second um, Chronicles chapter sixteen verses seven and verse ten. Uh, this is a, a story of a king named Asa, uh, and Asa is not the king that you want your life to be patterned after because Asa is known for being unbelieving. Verse 7, At that time Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. That he found himself in a pickle. And rather than calling on God to say, God, deliver me from my enemy who is coming after me, he didn't go to God. He went to another king and said, hey, make a treaty with me. I'll pay you more than the other guy and then you can help me beat him and then I'll be out of trouble. Well, God sent a prophet to Asa after he made this deal and he said, Asa, you screwed up because you didn't come to me. By not going to God, that's a silent admission that you think there are better options. And then Asa does it again in verse 10. Then Asa was angry with the seer for telling him this, shooting the messenger, and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him because of this, and Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. But Asa did not like God telling him, hey, I'm going to discipline you because you didn't believe. Now, why does God discipline people? Sin. Asa's sin was his unbelief. And when the Holy Spirit comes, He convicts of that as well. He convicts of unbelief. Now, personally, and the the commentators thought so too, I think the primary meaning is probably the second one. That the Holy Spirit shows up and if you're saved, do you remember this moment? You remember when you recognized, oh my goodness, I don't just do sin sometimes. I live a life of sin. I am a sinner. That is who I am. The day that happened to you, the day you recognized that you were a sinner. The reason you recognize that is it's not because some preacher told you. Preachers tell people that every Sunday. The reason you recognize that is because the Holy Spirit did what Jesus said he was going to do. And the Holy Spirit showed up as the prosecutor and convicted you of your sinful lifestyle and said your unbelief in Jesus is exhibit A of your sinful life. But then he did what? He called you to turn from that sinful life and believe. If that's ever happened to you, you prove Jesus right. That the Holy Spirit comes and convicts the world of sin. No matter what else you may point to in your life, if you refuse Jesus, the Holy Spirit convicts you guilty of sin. So that's the first thing the Holy Spirit does, is He convicts us of sin. The second thing the Holy Spirit does, is He convicts the world of righteousness. Now this is an odd statement to me. Look at verse 10 says of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. Now this is interesting based on what we just read, right? If he convicts the world of sin, you wouldn't expect him to be saying he convicts the world of righteousness, would you? You'd expect him, you'd expect Jesus to say that when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of unrighteousness. But he doesn't say that. He says he's going to convict the world of righteousness. And then it says, why? Because I go to my Father and you see me no more. So whose righteousness is the Holy Spirit convicting the world of? Jesus' Jesus righteousness. Well, why does the Holy Spirit have to convict the world of His righteousness? Everybody knows He's righteous. No, they don't. No, they don't. Say, well, if Jesus was here, ah, but He's not. Isn't that just what Jesus said? That the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of righteousness. Why? Because I go to my Father and you see me no more. That Jesus is not physically walking this earth to be cross-examined. And if He was walking this earth to be cross-examined, I'm not so sure that would help. Isn't that what the Pharisees and the scribes did for His entire earthly ministry? Is try and prove Him unrighteous? Try and prove Him crazy? Listen to this. These are things that Jesus was accused of being. And I sum them up and then I'm going to give you a reference. I'm not going to go back and read every passage. First, Jesus was ac- accused of being a glutton, drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. This one, particularly crazy. He was accused of being an illegitimate child possessed by a demon. John chapter 8, verse 48. I mean, I mean, that one is, I'm close enough to it. Just so you can say, well, Josh, are you exaggerating a little bit? No, I'm not. I mean, that's, that's basically verbatim. John chapter 8, verse 48. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan, in other words, that you are not actually a Jew, and have a demon? I mean, that's what they accused Jesus of. They accused Jesus of being an illegitimate child possessed by a demon. They accused him of being, quote, out of his mind, Mark chapter 3, verse 21. If you thought the uh, illegitimate child one was bad, they accused him of being possessed by Satan, Mark chapter 3, verse 22. And then finally, before his crucifixion, the crowd accused him of being a seditionist out to overthrow Rome. John chapter 19, verse 12. See, the the world couldn't make up its mind that Jesus was righteous when he was among us the first time. Do you think that Jesus would fare any better in 2018? Do you think if Jesus walked into a, a, an interview, uh, if Jesus walked back onto this earth physically, and He walked into Times Square in the middle of New York, and said, I invite any world media organization to interview me, I will answer any question you want for as long as you need. And they aired that interview Unedited. do you think that at the end of that interview, the world would accept Him and say, oh my goodness, we've been wrong about Jesus the whole time. He's actually completely right about everything. Do you think that would happen? No. It didn't happen then, and it wouldn't happen now. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, 37-39, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If somebody rejects Jesus, it's always for one of two reasons. There are only two reasons somebody rejects Jesus. First, they don't believe he is who he claimed to be. That you believe Jesus is not God. You believe he's not the Messiah. You believe he's maybe a good teacher, which is not what Jesus claimed to be. You believe maybe he's just a Jewish rabbi who's... Teaching has been messed up over the years and, you know, whatever. So you don't believe he is who he came to believe. Or, and there are folks like this, you believe if he is who he claimed to be, the God he is isn't worthy of worship because they disagree with him. I've read people that said, listen, if if the God of the Bible is real, I've I've read people. I can give you names. that They said, I will read the Bible and if that God exists, if that's the God there is, I'm not giving Him my worship because He's not worth it. I won't name drop behind the pulpit, but I can give you names. That thought is out there. The Holy Spirit comes to convict those that will hear Him. Y'all, Jesus is actually righteous. He is actually right. That Jesus is actually morally perfect. The reason that I stand up here behind this book, the reason that when, when we get together and we pray on Sunday mornings before Sunday school, I've got some believers who, who get together and they pray and, and thank the Lord. They pray for me before I get up here and preach. And they say, hide him, hide Josh behind the cross. The reason that I'm thankful they pray for that is because Jesus is perfectly morally righteous. His words are inerrant. His words are perfect. There is no mistake in them. If there is a difference between my life in this book, if there is a difference between my sermon in this book, if there is a difference between my opinion and this book, then I'm the one who needs to change. Not this. We don't correct this. This corrects us. The Holy Spirit comes and convicts, convinces those that will listen to Him. You don't get to judge Jesus. Jesus gets to judge you. He's perfect. He's good, He's right, but He's also merciful. He's also kind, He's also loving, He's also willing to accept you and to forgive you. So if you're here today and you're thinking, well, Jesus has got to convince me, let your wall down and let the Holy Spirit talk to you for a little bit and ask yourself the question, have I, been, have I been looking at Jesus the wrong way? Are you willing to admit that maybe He's been right the whole time? And maybe it's us who are wrong? First Corinthians 12.3 Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. If you, if you can call Jesus accursed or if you can call Jesus anything other than the Son of God, you are not speaking by the Spirit. And then, second, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, I am not telling you. Please go find some angry college professor who's an atheist that says, "I'm going to prove the Bible wrong. Jesus is Lord." See, that's that's not what Paul means. He's not saying you cannot physically pronounce the words "Jesus is Lord" unless the Holy Spirit's helping you. What he's saying is, if you are convinced that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is God. If you are convinced of that here today, you're convinced of that because the Holy Spirit convinced you. That, that's how you got there. On a side note, this is why we, as, as conservative Baptists, we don't believe in a second baptism of the Holy Spirit after salvation. When you gave your life to Christ and He saved you, you got the Holy Spirit. He's not leaving. How do I know that? Well, the fact that you believe that Jesus is Lord means that the Holy Spirit is with you. Because you can't believe that Jesus is Lord except by Him. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus says the Holy Spirit does when He shows up as He convicts you of Jesus' righteousness. And then finally, after the Holy Spirit convicts the world of its sin, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of Jesus' righteousness... Because Jesus is not physically here for them to see him. They have the Holy Spirit now. Finally, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of judgment. And in verse 11, Jesus says of judgment. Why? Because the ruler of this world is judged. <clears throat> this is also interesting because it's not the judgment of the sinner that's in view here, it's the judgment of who? The ruler of this world. And the judgment of the ruler of this world has already taken place. That's what Jesus says It's already been done. All that's left is for the sentence to be carried out. So who's the ruler of this world? Before we answer this question, though I'm sure some of you probably know, somewhat obvious. This is John again. John is doing this thing where he uses one word with multiple meanings. He uses this word world. We just quoted John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. <clears throat> but then he says the ruler of this world is judged. I've got a few verses I'm going to read to you that are not on your handout so that you can see. John, by the way, uses the word world 111 times in the books that he wrote. And he has multiple meanings for the exact same word. So in this passage, he says the ruler of this world in John 3, 16 and 17, we just quoted, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. So in John three seventeen, He came to save the world. Well, in John twelve thirty one, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Wait a minute, I thought He said He didn't come to condemn the world. But now He says it's the judgment of this world. John 14, 17, The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Well, wait a minute, I thought He came to save the world. And if He came to save the world, but the world can't receive the Spirit, what's going on? John 5, 19, We know we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Well, wait a minute. If we're of God, then we don't lie under the sway of the wicked one. So are we not part of the world? There are two senses in which John uses the word cosmos. It's the Greek word for world. In one sense, he uses it to mean everybody. In that sense, we are part of the world. We're, We're in this. We're people. We live on this planet. We're part of society. We are part of the world. In the second sense, John means it as the system by which this fallen world operates. Have you ever heard somebody say you know, that they're wise in the ways of the world? You ever heard somebody say something like that? You know, that doesn't mean in the ways of just people. That means they know how to get by in a shifty, messed up world that we lived in. That's the second meaning of the world. Christ came to save everyone in the world. He did not come to save the messed up system that this world operates by. Everyone is able to receive the Spirit because Jesus Christ died for everyone. So if you trust Christ, you can receive the Spirit. There's no one who is excluded from being able to trust Christ and have the Spirit. But this world's system is not able to receive the Spirit. It doesn't know Christ. Jesus didn't come to save this world system. Jesus, Satan doesn't rule over everyone because there are those who have trusted Christ. You see, John uses it two different ways. So when Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged, Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit, when He comes and He moves in somebody's heart, He will cause them to recognize that the world they have been devoting their entire life to, all of their money, all of their fame, all of their kingdom, all of the stuff that is really a giant waste of time, the Holy Spirit will finally help them see it, see it for what it is. That the ruler of this world has already been judged. Satan's already been defeated. You already know what's going to happen to him. And if you don't break away from following him, you will get the same result. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this World, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. I'm going to say this and I'm going to say it as clearly as I can. If you are in here today and you have never given your life to Jesus, you are a puppet on the strings of Satan. And yeah, we talked about that in Sunday school. I used it too. If you've never given your life to Christ, you're a puppet on the strings of Satan and you can't help it. You walk According to the ruler of this world right now, Satan, this evil, broken world system, you're not a good person. There is no such thing unless your name is Jesus of Nazareth. But I've got so much in this world. I have so many ambitions and so many things I want to accomplish. Mark 8.36 What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? This world's already been judged. At the cross, Satan was overthrown. The power of sin and death was broken. But there are still people who are following this defeated general. Y'all ever heard the stories of the... uh, the, the soldiers who were deep in the jungle. I think it, I mean, there are a couple of stories of this happening. It was during Vietnam. There were several soldiers from each side that were embedded in the jungle that they had bumped down. And for 10 or 15 years after the war was over, they were still bumped down because they didn't know the war was over. Communication had never gotten to them. Living your life in thrall to Satan like that—it's you're living oblivious to the fact that not only has Satan been defeated, he's already been judged. You're just waiting for the sentence to be carried out. There is nothing in this world valuable enough to cost you your soul. I don't care what it is. When the Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit convicts you. He will convict you of three things. He will convict you of what your sin is. All of it. And the fact that, that, that you're unbelieving in God is just exhibit A. He will convict you of the righteousness of Jesus, that Jesus really is worth worship. And you may not be able to see him with the eyes of your head, but you can see him with the eyes of your heart, when the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to, that Jesus really is righteous. He really is worthy of your worship and devotion sing him about that worthy of worship worthy of praise worthy of honor and glory worthy of all the glad songs we can sing worthy of all this and added to these that he really is righteous he really is worthy and then he'll convict you of the judgment of the ruler of this world that Satan's already defeated and that the whole world is going down behind us jump ship into the arms of Christ If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, Miss Sandy and Miss Joyce are about to come play a couple of uh, verses of an invitation hymn, and you have the opportunity right now to respond to the Holy Spirit. I know He's working right now because anytime the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit is at work. The question is, are you going to listen? Are you going to act on it? We have a few different ways. If you have questions about what it means to be saved, and you can respond. You can come down this aisle and you can say, Pastor, I need to talk to you. You can fill out the guest card on the side of your bulletin and put it in the offering plate when he comes by. I'll be glad to follow up with you. You can catch me at the back door and say, Pastor, I, I need to talk to you before I leave. I miss my other two chances. You don't have to miss it there. Just respond when the Holy Spirit talks to you. I'm going to pray. If you need to come, you come. Father, thank you so much for today. Lord, we pray that you bless this time of uh, invitation, Lord, that uh, the folks that your spirit is working on, the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would continue to work on them and draw them to draw them to Jesus. Jesus, you promised that if, if you be lifted up, you draw all them to yourself. Well, we're doing our best to lift you up today. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would save people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.